and my father and I had a little chat afterwards in the evening and he said, uh, you know, son, you know, uh, I didn't understand when you said you wanted to go into art. I, th I didn't know what that was. I thought that, you know, those shops at the mall where they have those pictures of horses, I thought that's where you wanted to work. And I was like, the framing gallery, you know, and that was his reference point for art, you know. And, but I, he said, you know, I thought that's what you wanted to do. And I didn't think that was a good career path for you. But, um, you know, you've never uh, you've never moved back home. You've never asked me for money and you seem to be doing well for yourself. You know, so, you know, I'm happy that you're doing what you're doing. Hey, welcome. And I like to talk about writing things or things that have been going on to connect the dots. It's, it's strange because when I record these, they're not always in the same order as I record. So I have to kind of think about where I was when recording things and fit it into this preamble. I'm just a little bit off balance, a little equilibrium shook up. Um, just feels like every time I turn around, there's some sort of a test of somebody's mortal presence. The struggle with life and death is all around, just in my friends and family circle. That I, it's so hard sometimes because you just can't keep it completely out of your sphere and your thoughts. And uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, but you know, be support and for those who are in need of it. And I really try to be as positive and upbeat about everything. And it's just a little tough. Uh, I completed the rewrite of the opening uh, for the book, which I think is great. I have to give it a, I have to sort of now transpose and clean it up a little bit, but it, uh, I think it really does the trick and I hope the verdict will support that. I guess last week's episode was with a, uh, James Robinson, and then I uh, recorded last week also with Jeff Johnson, and I'm uh, the the artist for the Rogues Kingdom, and then I'm recording with Brennan Wagner, the colorist. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to have these relationships, these teams of creators, and I, I like hearing their perspective on the projects. It's interesting, and I and I feel that this is sort of my best. Um, connection with the comic industry, much more so than it was as a penciler. It didn't lock into anything that felt like was a legacy kind of piece of work. And I think one of the touchstones for life and death was the passing of Keith Giffen, uh, writer and artist extraordinaire, really one of the prolific, great, unique voices and talents of the generation who I grew up reading their books. And I was fortunate to have worked with Keith on a project, short-lived, unfortunately, and real bummer because I've just idolized the guy's work. To put his words to life was a real learning experience for me. And one I'll cherish forever because, you know, as I wrote, he's an iconoclast. He really did try to break things <laughs> apart, down, however you want to use the term to try to uh, make something greater from that. And his voice will be missed. Fortunately, there are 
so many pieces of his work out there that we will be able to enjoy forever. Rest well, Captain. You did an amazing job. And this week's guest is Michael Cho. Michael is a Canadian illustrator, uh, comic book artist, and you know, as he puts it, sometimes writer. He has a very strong connection to the masters of, of comics in the heyday of the 60s. It's just so cool seeing his work and how he really tries to boil it down to an essence, which is a nice contrast to a lot of the very uh, detailed-oriented artists out there. He was a joy to talk to, really. You know, we got a little middle-agey at times with, with things, but I, I think there was a nice discussion and thread about creativity that he uh, is passionate about, and I'm just super excited to share the discussion and didn't really have an idea of what he was working on until the end of when I asked him and he just drops this bomb and I'm like, Oh man, like his project his upcoming project is going to be spectacular. I can't wait to read it. If you like really great classic comic books, you know, really silver era stuff, then there's something to look forward to uh, coming from him. So Here's me, Michael Cho. Your background for your uh, recording thing is that Jack Kirby panel, Fantastic Four, right? Uh, the thing yeah. is, it was a, yeah, it's a big giant machine. I, I re-inked it because the quality wasn't good, so I just re-inked it and then threw it through with some uh, uh, color Aurora in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but like, listen, if I'm talking about creation of stuff with people who create stuff all the time. Like it, it's sort of that's the uh, one of the, or if not the, your big bang is, yeah, uh, yeah. Are we, um, by the way, when let me know when we start this. So we've, I, we've begun, and okay, yeah, whatever, okay. whatever happens, happens. Okay. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, so I mean, you know, so Kirby, Kirby's the man, like it just was the, I remember. It was this really weird period. I remember like in the seventies, just getting tons of comics, you know, for some reason you could go to yard sales and just buy bushels of comics for nothing. And I mean, I read like everything that Kirby did like in the sixties and seventies, just because they were around. And I never like intentionally gravitated to his, his work. I didn't, I didn't go like, I got to get me Kirby comics, but they were just so part of my like DNA of, of childhood reading comics that when I, I you know was older and I was in art school I was like oh oh you know, like it kind of finally sunk in I was like that that's the man so yeah I think it's um for me as well it's a similar type of thing I think Kirby's kind of ubiquitous particularly after um the birth of the Marvel age in the 60s right I mean everything that came out of that influenced the stuff that you, we saw in the 70s. Every artist working in the 70s was, you know, influenced by Kirby to mm -hmm. some extent or reacting to Kirby to another extent, you know. So um, when I was reading comics in the 80s, um, I would see people who would who had a Kirby-esque style like um, Herb Trimpey, um, Ron, uh, Ron Wilson, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And then also people who had sort of amalgamated and added their own um, touches to it like 
one of my favorite artists as a kid was John Byrne. And John Byrne, <clears throat> for all his originality at the time, was also in a lot of ways um, an amalgamation of Ditko and Kirby, the, yeah. the best aspects of the Marvel Age. So, but for me, um, my exposure to Kirby was um, reprints, right? Mm -hmm. uh, would always um I, when i was a kid uh, my parents ran a variety store and back then marvel would repackage reprints for monthly comics so they would have um uh, like amazing spider-man in marvel tales and i would read the ditko stories and then they would also have the occasional fantastic four or other or captain america stuff in um, in another reprint package and uh and my all-time favorite things to get were uh, the little pocket books you know oh, the, yeah yeah I still collect those uh, because uh, when I was like nine, you know, um, to get like uh, four issues or five issues of the first run of Fantastic Four in a tiny little mm -hmm. uh, pocket condition, you could take that anywhere. It was portable, you know. You could you could take that to a boring um, church picnic and sit on a blanket and read, you know, the Fantastic Four meeting uh, Doctor Doom for the first time in a tiny <laughs> format. So. Um, that was my real exposure to uh, Kirby, and I like a kid. I mean, you don't really think about the artist, you know. No. You're thinking about the story. But um, I, I, I didn't like Kirby's artwork. I thought it was weird. I mm -hmm. was like clean, safe, and and um, and uh, understandable artwork. You know, the big fat outlines and bright colors and uh, clean type of figures but um i what i what i recognized even as a kid was that um i had this collection a pocketbook collection of captain america stories right and kirby did about 70 percent of that collection and stanley wrote all the stories but they had a couple of other artists fill in uh, george tusca took over the middle and then there were a couple of john ramita senior stories in there as well i think and um i just realized that the kirby stories were just better yeah. You know? yeah, they were like, like when when uh, it was when Kirby was drawing Captain America. I thought his drawing was a little weird, but I thought, man, these are really great stories. They're so fun. And then when George Tuska took over for you know the middle of the run, I was like, somewhere there's no juice in this anymore. It's just kind of meh, you know. And yeah. uh, I didn't realize that um, what he imparted to comics was uh, was you know something that was uh, that that elevated that material, whereas mm -hmm. without it became uh, what it was, which is sort of, you know, um, disposable juvenile, um, you know, uh, ephemera. But somehow through Kirby, it made it better. And I didn't realize at the time, of course, that it was it was him. It was I just thought Stanley wrote better stories or something. <laughs> sure, he was on that. He was on that mug. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it took until like I graduated art school uh, and then I reevaluated Kirby um, uh, that uh, for me to really see the genius. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I, I really echo everything you say because it was this, you know, this sort of like looking back, I'm like, man, like the bulk of the comics I did read, you know, let's say between, you know, 1971 and, you know, 1979 were Jack Kirby comics. Like they were just, because I had so many and I wasn't going, I got to get me a Jack Kirby comic. I just like, I wanted a comic. But there were so many of his things, and they would reprint, as you said, everything. Like it's like, hey, Marvel two and one. There's a Jack Kirby comic in there, and you're right. like, cool. I'm gonna read it. Um, but yeah, that 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 you know, I I mean, I would even want to say it's like simple as just excitement or energy that he imparted. There was just another level of story that he was putting in there 
that kind of kept your attention. And I don't know, that's, that's just kind of how I put it. Dude, you're dead on about the burn thing. Cause I really like, cause to me, like if I made, made the, you know, looking at the tree of influences, like, well, burn is directly of atoms, but he's a synthesis of atoms and burn. Because if you think of like classic burn, like storytelling and, you know, sort of like heaps of tech, you know, and rubble, <laughs> it's so very burn it, to do very much like Kirby stuff. Yeah, and if you know what, I'm not the I'm not the uh, the person who uh, who came up with that analogy. Um, I read that years ago, and it it hit the light bulb in my head because um, I I was a huge John Bernard, and um, um, it someone pointed out he's he's if you mix Kirby and, and and Ditko together, if you put Ditko faces on Kirby figures, right, <laughs> you get John Bernard. And I was like, what? And then I saw it, and I was like, oh yeah. But mind you, he is his own man. I mean, yeah, of his, course. Completely different from Kirby. I mean, you could see it in the the early John Byrne stuff that he's trying to do Kirby tech, but then eventually he he creates his own language. But the mm-hmm. influences are definitely there, you know. Um, and like like we're saying, um, if you're growing up in the 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 seventies, all that stuff is influenced by Kirby. And then the eighties, yeah. there's a generation of artists who've come of age reading Kirby, so it, it's it's there in the fabric. And Marvel um, never really let go of an opportunity to reprint that stuff because it was such evergreen stuff you mm-hmm. know um, anytime there was a an, uh, giant size anniversary issue of something uh whether it was captain america or something there might be four new stories and then one you know reprint of a classic kirby story or something or um you know a, another tribute issue of fantastic four that has the main story is all, uh, you know, is John Byrne doing Fantastic Four? And then there's a little backup that was a reprint of, uh, of of Kirby's or something like that. Yeah, it's like, well, it's sort of like, you know, going back to, you mentioned the, the church picnic. I mean, it's like the Old Testament. You know, you got, you got to crack it out here and there and, you know, give us Genesis and give us, you know, all the old stories to keep everything solid and, and grounded, you know, and that's sort of kind of what Kirby and, you know, his, his you know, alum along yeah. with Ditko kind of did for us. But you know you know what it is as well, when you point out like um, what the difference is, what the um, sort of um, undefinable, intangible quality that makes that stuff evergreen. It, it, it's not just his mastery of action or something. <clears throat> I think it's commitment. He mm. purely committed and believed in that stuff that yeah. he wrote. You know, and other you could see it in other artists. It's a professional job. I'm doing my assignment. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what's required of me. I'm gonna draw Captain America punching this guy, and the script says, you know, he has to punch this robot. So I have to design a robot. I've drawn a robot, and here's my, you know, four pages of Captain America fighting the robot. And I figure at the end he beats him by punching him out the plane or something. Kirby believed in what he was writing mm-hmm. and drawing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He, those figures were real. He believed that the action was real. He believed he committed to coming up with the best stuff with an excitement and an energy, you know, in every panel that uh, that other artists could not muster. You know, Ditko did the same. Yeah. Know, in the best Ditko stuff, uh, you saw the same quality of joy, uh, raw creativity and raw commitment to mm-hmm. the work. I, I often liken it to um, like with the... Um, the best golden age period of any comic run, right, is kind of like to me, um, like the same energy of a punk uh, do-it-yourself record, 
Yeah. You know, um, the first 20 issues of Detective Comics Batman has it. Um, mm-hmm. The first 50 issues of Fantastic Four has it. Um, the, the um, you know, the first 33, 34 issues of Amazing Spider-Man has it. It's not about technique. It's just about uh, raw excitement, creativity, and drive commitment to the stuff that you're making and it's um it lends um uh, palpable energy to the effort that can't be faked yeah yeah so when you when i see um like the crudest drawings in the early detective comics from the 30s there's an energy in there that can't be faked you know and and it comes across and it translates for the reader so that they have the same excitement it's the same thing that i feel when i read um those uh ditko spider-mans the amazing spider-man ones the early ones i mean by today's standards ditko's drawings may be crude you know (laughs) but the sheer level of uh, you can sense the excitement and the raw creativity of of someone making it up as they go along and having a great time yeah you know and uh and that uh, trumps any kind of uh, drawing technique. You could have the, the most you know amazing technique in the world, but it, you know you're just if you're a guitarist, you're a noodler, you know, unless you have something exciting to say. And and conversely, you could have the crudest technique in the world, but at the same time, if you've got something, if you've got that energy and you've got something, a drive to express something, uh, that gives the artwork its life. Yeah, no, I mean, I that, that's perfect. You beat me to the music metaphor punch because I was like thinking the same thing. And it's that commitment to performance, you know, regardless of whatever you're doing, whether it's with a pencil or with a, you know, a guitar or anything. Um, and I, I also love the idea, you know, the sort of the challenge of, of technique, like technique, it always improves. It's like sports, you know, I mean, the technique that is from the training aspect to the playing aspect in sports always improves. Like there's just a refinement factor. It's just the nature of, you know, the human evolution. And we can often conflate this, you know, this sort of like refined technique as better Mm -hmm. than something else, you know? So if you play a movie for somebody who's young now and it was a really great movie in the 70s or the 80s well this the technical you know sort of prowess of filmmaking has improved on the technique end it doesn't make them better films you know you have to kind of look at it in context and go well this is amazing it's just undeniable and conversely like i mean um stuff you stuff that um stays evergreen you know uh um regardless of technique um is stands up against anything today Mm -hmm. there are films that were made in the 40s that are perfect yeah you know Uh, and and, you know even shot through the studio system with their limited amount of camera shots and 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 so forth that you know that the innovations of the 60s didn't uh plan for you know um but that energy that undefinable um joy of creation that's sometimes like the thing that drives uh, a really great work of art like um i mean even in pop culture like uh, my son and i were watching for example we've been going through a little period um, he's seven and uh, uh he got into star wars a couple of years ago and we've been re-watching those movies and we watched uh, empire strikes back recently and he knows it's it's stop motion you know yeah. he knows that there's no cg in this stuff he's watching the walker sequence and it's like stop motion but he's fully invested because that thing just works 
Yeah. You know, there, there's a, there's a level of commitment and, uh, and, uh, and just drive in that movie that isn't present in the later prequels and the, and the, uh, the current batch of uh, sure. sequels and so forth. So, you know, and we were, and it's just, it's marvelous. Like you can see the seams, you know, but mm-hmm. it doesn't stop it from uh, working. And, you know, it, it, so that like, and at the time when we watched it in the eighties, I mean, I was like marveling at how amazing it was, how great special yeah. effects were that, but now you see it and you go like, Oh yeah, that's clearly a puppet, but it doesn't matter. No. You know, you know oh it was i mean yeah i mean it absolutely is and it um you know i mean it's almost a, to think it's like a magic trick you know because in the ter- it, it, you know in the moment if you're if you've been invested you know into that moment you're not going to look at all the you know all the sort of the scars you're going to look at what's happening and like it's so it's the magician gotten like moving that hand Meanwhile, the other hand's doing the, you know, the trick and, right. you know, and that's kind of what's happening on the screen. So, yeah, no, I love, I love, I love that. I mean, and listen, things are being made right now that are, people will be talking about, you know, 50 years from now in the same, oh, yeah. in the same sort of reverence. It's just, we, you know, often we don't know, but, um, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it won't be the stuff that you think it is. No, it won't be the thing that's popular. I, 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 I long, I've long known that it's uh, the stuff that remembered. Like popularity doesn't matter. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, the the historical record will like when I think about painting, for example, I always think about um, Alphonse Bouguereau. You know, mm. and the salon painters of the of the eighteen seventies or whatnot, and they were considered the greatest painters of their generation. Nobody remembers that crap. No. Nobody remembers nymphs and satyrs frolicking in the woods in a photorealistic oil painting. You know, everybody remembers the impressionists or Van Gogh yeah. or something from that era. Right, so, and they were not, and they were considered like way out there. They were complete rejects. They were considered, yeah. you know, uh, distasteful and not yeah, part the, of the phobists. Man, like the exactly. focus, they were just like th- those people are ridiculous. But you I know, love the focus, by the way, yeah. I, I remember looking. I had I had an Andre Duran uh, print uh, while a reproduction on my wall for years when I was uh, like seventeen because I just loved the color palette. So it, it, it is like it, it really like if hey if you hot tip if you want to become a colorist, take a look, <laughs> yeah. at, the, take a look at the focus and yeah. really understand like how they are putting color down because it is foundational to so many oversaturated kind of things that have been done. Yeah. And also just to, just to open up your mind from, uh, from, you know, the standard thinking of grass is green, sky is blue. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the way I always describe colorists is like whenever we have uh, a talk with other artists about uh, uh, colorists, we're always going like, yeah, but is he like a grass is green, sky is blue guy? Or is he, (laughs) you know, they're like, no, 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 that's not that kind. And it's like, okay, that's my kind of colorist. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. And that's the cool thing about, you know, color is that I don't think, I mean, it's like, I mean, I think we're talking a lot about context in this, but like you can, you can set your own context. And once you do, and once, you know, you get the reader invested, they don't care. They want like they want the experience. And that's what, you know, that's what the art, you know, and all of it being art, but the art and the writing and the, you know, the coloring all together kind of create this really, you know, experience, this unique experience, if you're all searching for that. Mm-hmm. And I, like, again, going back to technique, I mean, you know, um, some of the like I whenever I uh, talk about what what you need to make comics and uh, I always tell people um comics is one of the few mediums where you don't need uh, a whole load of technique 
You know, you just need energy. Some of the greatest comics in the world have been made by people who couldn't draw a lick. Yeah. You know, in a traditional sense, but the energy came through. Um, the story was great. The the uh, the storytelling part of it uh, worked for their technique. You know, um, I point out. Um, uh, I shouldn't make some examples like this because it may be misinterpreted. But uh, Jeffrey Brown, for example, mm. is an excellent author of comics um, by traditional you know uh, uh appreciation you would say that um uh he doesn't draw like neil adams you know right. he draws practically still stick figures and yet he's vastly popular because uh, his stories have an energy that kids totally understand you know yes. they, they they his and his storytelling style uh works for that type of energy and and it the overall impact of it is something that uh that that is greater than the the sum of the technical parts. Well said. Yeah, I I mean, and because I think I think so many times that we and I mean, like you and I also grew up in a time, you know, and the people grow. I mean, but like you looked at comics and what was in front of us were these very well polished pieces of work. You know, these people are all all you know editorially curated to a certain level, and if you didn't naturally have that and you didn't have that little fi extra fire saying i got to get to that it was dispirit i think it could be very dispiriting unless you have that sort of diy punk attitude of like well fuck it i'm just going to do whatever i want but it's tough like but now i feel like you, there's such a variety that people can kind of look and say like i don't need to be you know the the top draftsman to get a gig or to do a thing like you can make a thing and as you said man you don't need much period no no and i i i think that that's one of the best things about this um current sort of online era uh uh is that um the old guard of people who make comics you know think that um their way of comics is like the only way of comics and that and that the the superstars in mainstream comics who whoever's drawing batman this month uh is probably the most popular artist in comics but uh a little kid will tell you Raina telgemeier is the greatest art, artist totally. in comics. she outsells batman you know what five to one or whatever uh -huh. you know and um another 14 year old kid will tell you no man this person who does these instagram uh comics where that's just like about their cat is the greatest artist in comics and the old guard might look at that but that person can't draw a lick right. you know and it's not even in color you know it's it's drawn mm -hmm. in paint with stick figures or something it's it's whatever methods you have to to express your idea you know yeah. um whether it's in one panel format and drawn in uh, MS Paint, or whether it's a, it's an elaborate, fully colored, digital painted thing, or anything in between, you know, and uh, or drawn with a ballpoint pen on on um, on lined paper for its own impact, you know, it's the uh, the variety that's available, the variety that's available, and the uh, the venues and the medium, the channels that you can sort of. Uh, uh, publish this work in is is just staggering to me that uh, mm -hmm. when I was a kid I would make little zines and I would make little um, you know homemade comics when I was what ten years old and uh, I would go uh, I would draw it on ballpoint pen on typing paper that I folded in half and I, it would cost me money to photocopy that and I couldn't always afford it yeah and uh, and then um, 
and and nowadays you know you you create a you draw something in five minutes and uh, it's on your tumblr account and it's available to the world immediately and you get feedback from you know around the world that to me is just staggering the yeah. uh, the, the reach that you could have with uh, with whatever you create. So there really is no excuse, you know, mm-hmm. for people who want to make comics today. Um, yeah. you, you can make it through whatever pa- channels. And um, you don't have to uh, support yourself with this. You know, you can have a day job and still make comics. And you can also, um, you can also be uh, someone who kickstarts their own comic and makes a million dollars, you yeah. know? So the the venues that it's it's kind of it's paradoxical to me how um, comics always is described as being in crisis, you know, and on the verge of collapse, while we're also in this sort of golden age of uh, of distribution and uh, and and channels of you know of publishing, and how um, people uh, companies in the old guard are sort of still desperately trying to gatekeep. You know, yeah. and prevent that from happening. Yeah, I, I, listen. I, I think. I mean, you know, that the hard part is that you know we are living in an extremely external period in time. We we are. You know, there's a lot of us looking outward and considering what we look like outward. So there's a very very strong push in that sense. But with this democratization of technology tools of technology that allow us to do this you know if we can not look at somebody else and do the thing that we want to do and don't say like well to be the artist on batman is my bar of success you can get you could you can do anything at this point once you once you say hey i can do whatever i want whether it's you know one panel or a million panels i don't care and it's just if you can communicate what your intent is with whatever skill sets you have available in in an you know in a semi-elegant fashion then go for it just have fun yeah yeah i i agree you know it that same um impulse that makes you draw comics in the first place yeah uh, should get you uh into a position of success you know <laughs> in totally. comics you know what kind of zines were you doing when you were around 10 and 12 oh god um well 10 and 12 uh, is different from like when i was 16 and stuff like that when i was um when i was uh 10 what would that be like grade three or four or something like that um i would put together little comics that were like pastiches of um, marvel comics mm-hmm. you know in the 80s because because uh, that's what i wanted to do as a kid and uh and like i would create my own superheroes and uh i drew like a 10 page story and then a 20 page story and i would at that time i had uh read a copy of uh, how to draw comics the marvel way so i drew it the proper way i drew all the little you know uh, construction of the figures mm-hmm. with the that you split it in the quarters for the the face and then um i inked it with uh, i tried to ink it with a croquil pen but just could not figure Oof. that thing out at that age uh so i inked it with uh, the tools of the 80s which is uh you know uh felt tip pens sure right and, uh, and uh, I, I lettered it. Uh, my lettering is still pretty good, by the way. Uh, I, I People are always like laughing at the fact that, oh, my God, you could letter. And I was like, yeah, I learned this when I was like 10 years old. <laughs> um, I, know I, I could letter like Gaspar Saladino or something. Uh, and uh, um, and I, I put these things out and they were my comics. And then um, as I got older, um, 
I would make little zines that were mostly like um, a few drawings, um, a page of comics, um, a record review, that kind of thing. Yeah. And there was very little circulation on this. I mean, I might have given them out to friends uh, as Christmas presents and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, I continued that all the way to my 20s. Like, uh, I would put together like a little eight page comic of like a monkey in space. And then, um, and I would, and I'd give that out to friends as a Christmas present or, um, uh, and then um, when I was breaking in, um, one of the very first conventions I went to uh, was one in town, which is great, um, a local one called uh, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, TCAF, which is sort of like SPX, but on steroids. And uh, at the time, it was early in uh, uh, the, the career. Uh, when I went to uh, TCAF, I made some zines with uh, my wife, and one of them was uh, like a 20-page comic story, uh, just about kids uh, running around at nighttime. And then, uh, and and I actually sold them. <laughs> and I was, and by this time, mind you, uh, I was not trying to make a living um, as a comic artist. I was uh, working as an illustrator at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I actually sold them at a loss. I sold them for like two dollars because I figured that's what scenes should be priced at. You know. Right. Um, yeah, so I continued that until I got way too busy and I couldn't, um, I couldn't do that anymore. But um, I, I always wanted to go back and make scenes. But nowadays, it's like, um, it would probably be online or a risograph or something like that. Right. But yeah, yeah, the risograph would be great. I mean, I kind of feel like the, uh, the blog took over the zine thing. You could just kind yeah, of, make, yeah, you know, really you, could, you could kind of create your own zine as a blog and just kind of go that way. My friend. Uh, my friend uh, Jay Stevens had this insight years ago about what happened to uh, single panel cartoonists was that um, once social media was established, you know, whenever you had a grievance or an interesting thought about, uh, you know, um, societal observation or something like that, you would make a little one one panel comic strip or a comic about that. And then it was like once Facebook uh, arrived, he said, you know, it was just easier to make a quick post. Uh, mm-hmm. A little text post, you know, with a with a joke, a ride joke in it, than to spend the six hours it was to make a polished, you know, one panel, uh, you know, societal observation comic or something. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. And now, I mean, it's just a series of memes, you know. Totally, yeah. I mean, they're. I guess maybe we could uh, we could hijack Inktober into that daily uh, societal observation comic. <laughs> I have never done Inktober ever. And I, crazy. I applaud anybody like um, uh, Chris Somney can hit deadlines oh. and do Inktober. And I'm sorry, I, I, I will never, you will never get me to uh, draw someone else's prompts uh, yeah. for no. Uh, that's just like I, I will never have the time for that. You know. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because it's a, it's an extra layer. Like, I get it. It's sort of kind of the prompt sort of eases, I guess, your your selection process, but. But then, like the pressure to like be clever and create something witty, you know, of some sort. Yeah, no, I don't need that. I don't need that. Right. I, I don't want to be. Um... Also, years ago, I, I started running into people who were like trying to corporatize Inktober or something, you know, right. and we're trying to turn it into something. Like, I think I ran into the guy who he was at New York Comic Con and he introduced himself as the guy who created Inktober, and he was desperately searching for a way to monetize this thing, you know. Yeah. And, and I was just like, come on, man, like, 
look, just can you just not accept that you know you just made something that was good for the community rather than you know need to get rich off of it? Like, why does why does money have to enter into every single thing that we do? You know, and and you know, and it was just like it was so stupid, and people were trying to prevent each other from using the word October and things right. like that. And I was just like, ah, see, this is where this is where we're at as a society now. We can't just do good things for each other and you know play little games online everybody's got to get make money off of whatever they do their hustle you know so uh-huh. it was kind of disturbing and i was like um i get this like why don't you do october and i'm just like buddy i got a family you know yeah. i drop myself i don't need prompts for it you know and if i want to share it i will but i don't need a, a deadline for it if you want me to draw something for you for october then pay me you know right but, uh, yeah but otherwise, I reserve the right to draw things for myself on my own time. Yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Heimlich did not demand a uh, fee <laughs> for his idea. <laughs> exactly, you know. But that's where we are as a society. Do a good service. Yeah, do a good service. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I sort of did it a couple of years ago when this was me and some buddies hanging out doing some drawing and, but man, it was just, it was just way too much on top of like having a life and a, and a career. I just like, yeah. I don't, I don't need this. Uh, and I'm not trying to become comic famous anymore. So I don't care. Like it was just one of these things where I was just like, okay. I, I think I once it stops being fun, once something stops being fun and you're, and you're not like being paid to do it for work or something like that, you don't have to do it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's unless it's a responsibility that you absolutely have to fulfill or something. If it's not fun, particularly artistically, then it's work. Right. And if it's work, then you should be paid. Sure. Totally. And that's the, that was kind of always my mentality. Maybe I, get this from, I get this occasionally from people. Um, and it's like, you know, those, um, there's a list of little pet peeves right, that you get from people who don't understand what it is to be a professional artist. Uh, and one of the, the top 10 pet peeves I have is if I draw something for fun, and let's say it's a licensed character, right, let's say I drew, oh, I don't know, uh, Scooby-Doo for fun, mm. right, and I posted that on my Instagram, um, I get comments from people who say, now draw Speed Racer. <laughs> right. And, and, and my response to that is only if you pay me, yeah. you know, because this is something I did for myself. And once you, once I take requests from the gallery, right, then it's no longer fun. Yeah. Right. For me anyway, mm-hmm. you know, and I am not an art monkey sitting in a, in a cage for you to draw at your pleasure because you don't draw yourself. You yeah. know, I am, I am a professional artist and this is me, you know, on my downtime having drawn the characters of Scooby-Doo. You know, but I'm mm-hmm. not here to take requests and I'm not here to draw what's in your imagination. You know, yeah. every time I draw something um, uh, like something, there's but there's people like if I draw something vaguely 40s, there's someone goes, draw the Justice Society. And I'm like, I have no desire to. You know, if I draw, uh, I don't know, Doc Savage, they go draw the shadow. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm like, you draw the shadow. You right. know, it's the same kind of thing that um, my wife and I talk about this where, um, uh, we both started in children's book illustration. Okay. Right? My wife uh, is a is a is a acclaimed, award winning children's book illustrator, author, and designer. She's had bestsellers. She has um, a book list that is a mile long of accomplishments. 
right? And um, she primarily works in Canadians' children's publishing. I have a much smaller a resume in children's publishing because I left uh, a lot sooner because it wasn't the field for me. But uh, we both had the same experience. Whenever we'd go to a dinner party uh, and we'd meet people and friends and stuff like that, and, and they'd ask, what do you do? And someone says, you know, I'm an orthodontist or I'm a physical therapist. And then you say, I'm a children's book illustrator. You know what the number one comment back is? What? It's, oh, so you could draw my children's book. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. You know? And it's always uh, something like they, they corner you there while, you're, while you've got that little half smile on your face. And you're mm-hmm. at that point, you know, it's a story that I wrote. It's about the witches, and, but it's called the sandwiches because they're witches, but they're made of sand, uh-huh. you know, and, and, and they're the sandwiches. And you're just sitting there going like, you don't know anything about me. I yeah. don't know what my style is, whether I'm appropriate, what my credits are, the fact that I'm a, I'm a published professional illustrator who works with actual publishers. You have a vague children's book idea because everybody has a vague children's book idea. And your first words were to say, you know, so you could draw my children's book, you know, right. if, you know, we're all interchangeable, all artists across the field that, you know, I don't know. Jack Kirby could do the same work as Raina Telgemeier or something, you know, but that we could be your servant now, you mm-hmm. know, and I always have to sit there and bite my tongue and, and, and my wife is much more pleasant than me, <laughs> but, you know, I always have to bite my tongue and go, well, no, you know, I, I'm committed. I don't take any unsolicited work or something like that. And it's just, it's always been like a little, little, little jab at my side that I always go, God, I just wish I could not tell people that I, you know, I work in this field or whatnot. Yeah. So they don't have to sit corner me and tell me about their idea that they've never actually put on paper. I remember, I mean, I, I, listen, I, I haven't drawn comics, you know, in, you know, in 20 years, but I still get it. Anybody who like gets a whiff of that, they're like, Oh, well, I've got this story. I'm like, that's cool. But what used to bug me when I was younger and doing it, you know, your Monday through Friday drawing, you would, be in some sort of social situation and anybody who had a kid mm-hmm. found out that you drew comics they're like oh we my son so-and-so loves this character and you're like so now i gotta sit here and do something for someone i don't know <laughs> I'm like i don't like dude i was just drawing for Wait, 12 they, hours a day they want you to draw like my son loves spider-man and so you're supposed to pull out a piece of paper and draw spider-man yeah yeah that kind of stuff. What if you're not like? What, what do you mean? Like you're at the park and you're you're with your dog and then just just out socially. If, you know, obviously not just random people on the street, but just just in a, in a uh, you know in a social setting. It, it would drive me bonkers. That's that's one I don't think I've had. I've had people tell me that maybe I misread it because I've had people tell me my son loves Spider Man and yeah. I've never saw that as a as like I've never read that as now draw a Spider Man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would like, just. I wanted to carry around my tax receipts and just hand them to them and say, well, you handle my taxes and I'll take care of your, the drawings for your kid. <laughs> I don't, I like, I don't, uh, I'm not saying any of this maliciously keep this in mind. I do understand that like um, uh, people don't understand the etiquette, you know, because right. they haven't been in that position themselves to see it from the other side, you know, um, it's exciting. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a friend of mine um, years ago when I was a fan um, um, he ran into Stan Lee at the uh, San Diego Comic-Con and uh, he ran into Stan Lee in the bathroom 
and he asked Stanley to sign something for him <laughs> in the bathroom. You know, and I was like, I thought as a kid, I was like, oh my god, that's hilarious, dude. Did he sign it for you? Yeah, he did. And then, and then years later, you uh-huh. know, seeing it from the opposite side, I was like, oh god, that must be the most mortifying place to yeah. ever get asked to sign something. You know, while you're at the urinal. You know? Yeah. So you can see it from both sides, you know, and so I understand that the person at the dinner party who has the idea for the sandwiches, you know, the children's book is is not coming from a malicious place or a place no. of denigrate you, but they're just uninformed about how you know ridiculous this is. This is, you know, so I don't mean that in a malicious way. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like I mean and the thing is is like you know the difference between professionals and amateurs is amateurs have an idea of something, but they don't have all the other aspects that say, I'm going to make this thing happen. So they sit around with, you know, we gather a bunch of ideas like dust bunnies through life, unless you make these things. Mm-hmm. So when, when what seems to be a lightning bolt event of opportunity strikes, they're like, this is it. This is the moment. And they jump on it, even though they they are completely just not in the right, you know, who knows? You might be the person, perfect, perfect person for sandwiches, but who knows? Oh man, I, I, but I, I, one time, uh, if we're just going to do the area of grievances here, um, <laughs> one time I had a guy, um, at, uh, at a convention, um, and it was a particularly dull convention years ago, years and years ago. And, uh, he wanted to get a print from me and, uh, and he wanted me to draw a Superman on it. And I said, I don't want to do that. And he said, why? And I was like, well, this is my, this is a print of my artwork and, you know, I don't like defacing my own artwork. And with a little random doodle that doesn't fit on here, you know, there's no reason for it to be here. And it's like, well, can't you just draw me a little Superman on the corner of this? Because I really like Superman. And I was like, no, you know, you can either buy this or you don't have to, you know. And uh, and he was very adamant about this. And I kept saying, no, I will not deface my own artwork with a random doodle. This is a print of artwork that mattered to me. You know, I put something into this. And finally, uh, he uh, he. He, he he acquiesced and then he tried to um, explain himself by saying uh, well i'm putting together an anthology of comic uh, of comics and uh maybe you'd be good for it you know mm. to draw a story right and i said no i don't want to participate in your anthology at that point he was hurt and he said why and then uh, at that point now i'm exasperated so i i let him know i was like look you don't know me from adam you know, you've never seen my artwork ever, you know, and this fella, um, um, he, you know, he was standing there and I said, look, uh, you, you have this anthology of comics. You don't know me from Adam. You didn't know who I was when you approached my table. Uh, so you don't know what my artwork is like or whether or what my storytelling skills are like. And so therefore, uh, if you want me to draw a story for your anthology, then you're either a piss poor editor right where you were regardless whatever the whatever artist you get is fine with you or you don't actually have an anthology and you're just saying that so mm-hmm. either way i don't want to participate you yeah. know and he slinked away and and my buddy andy was beside me he said oh dude you really laced it to that guy and i was just like i was at the end of my rope man it was 20 minutes of arguing that i don't want to draw and deface my own artwork what do you want me to do you know yeah and I asked, you know <laughs> It's it's so tough. I mean, I think, I think we you know we 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 live in a very customizable age of fandom, where you can directly interface with the people who you think are amazing, and get them to do things that you want. Versus like enjoy the comics that they make, 
or the products they make. And now you, you live in a world where you can say, hey, Michael, I'm going to pay you whatever your fee is to draw the thing that I want you to draw. And it's this kind of interesting kind of model that you know didn't really exist predominantly for a long time. And you know that's how people are kind of primed at the moment. I don't, I don't, I don't mind that part of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, um, like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of fans are great, and I, yeah. I always am happy to meet them. And and the fans who want to pay me to draw a, a commission for them, that's an acceptable exchange. You know, I don't do commissions anymore. I and I don't sketch at shows anymore. But the thing is, that's a perfectly acceptable exchange mm-hmm. for an artist. If you approach an artist and, and they said, and they have a little sign that says, you know, we'll draw commissions, you know, and it's a hundred bucks or whatever, or 200 bucks or whatever. And you come up and say, I'd like a drawing of Wolverine, you know, that's a yeah. perfectly acceptable uh, arrangement that's been, you know, done for decades. I, I, I remember being 14 years old and meeting one of my first pros. It was, uh, uh, Paul Smith, who oh, was drawing. Good one. Yeah, I know. Good one. I, he was one of my favorites as a kid, and he was coming to my town, and nobody came to my town. And uh, I approached him, and uh, he was doing sketches, and I said, can I get a Wolverine and a Colossus sketch? And he said, well, you know, that's two heads, so therefore, it's $40, kid. And I was like, I have $40, Mr. Smith. <laughs> I gave him the 40 bucks, and he did me a drawing, and I was, you know, more than happy to get it. Uh, I wish I still had it somewhere. I don't know where it is. but Wow. Uh, yeah, but like, you know, that's a perfectly acceptable exchange. And, you know, yeah. and most of the time when I'm at shows, um, I'll chat with fans. And um, and uh, if they're particularly nice or we're having a nice chat or something, I'll do them a free sketch because, mm-hmm. you know, especially for kids, because that makes a big impact. And yeah. I getting a free sketch and, you know, it was felt like magic. So, you know, that's something I, I don't give up. I'm not I'm not denigrating the experience of, you know, interacting <laughs> with fans just because you're I not care. a monster. <laughs> I didn't just because I shared out a grievance I had with you. No, no. I mean, I I always did sketches for kids. Like it yeah. was always like that. Yes, absolutely. Every kid's going to get it. If a kid says, "Oh, would you do a drawing?" I'm like, absolutely. There's no question about it. And there was never, you know, it was it was. And I would discount the cost of it all the time. I'm joking. It was free. <laughs> um, yeah, it's but it's you know. But I think the expectation right now, just sticking on the grievance side a bit is that I think there's an expectation of, you know, the customer is always right kind of approach kind of thing with this. And it's not exactly that. I mean, this is, this is a, this is an agreement that we have to come to versus just an autocratic decision. So what is, what is an experience in, in that scenario of the customer is always right that you've had or a specific example that doesn't have to be a uh, true life experience? So, I mean, this is going back a while, but there there used to be a person who would go around at a, a well-attended uh, convention that happens every year in the southwest of our lovely nation. And this person would go around with a sketchbook and say, hey, would you draw character X? And you go, sure. And they were always female characters. And oh, yeah. Go, okay. okay, okay, okay. You're talking about crazy, crazy sketch dudes. It's- uh, yeah, I'm talking about a specific, a specific individual. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of crazy ones, but this one that had a very specific fetish okay. Okay. that had to do I, with under, uh, underwater, uh, underwater activities. Okay. So, okay. We have, yeah. you know what, we have, every artist has a pile of these and we all shared to figure out where these regional guys are. Yeah. Um, in Canada, we had a couple, uh, we had a fellow who, um, only collected, uh, pictures of women, female heroes covered in glue. 
okay, that might be that, that might be that Scuba Steve. So okay. So yeah, and it was he'd always describe it as there. I want a picture of name your female superhero, uh, She Hulk, covered in glue. You know, Power Girl <laughs> covered in glue, and uh, that's the way he described it. I always turned this guy down. Um, we we also had another guy um, who only wanted um, pictures of um, superheroes in bondage. They had to mm. be chained. Mm-hmm. Male superheroes always chained up. And uh, one time, uh, I I I know this guy because he used to make the rounds. And I said, no, I'm not going to draw that for you. I'm not going to draw Batman and tied to a bed. I'm not going to draw anybody in bondage for you. And then, and uh, and you know, it wasn't any malicious thing. I was just. I don't want, I'm the artist. I get the right to, re, I get to refuse what I don't want to draw. You know, yeah. uh, this is a McDonald's. I don't have to serve you, you know? Um, but um, the, the the guy said, okay, he came back around after the fourth time and said, okay, well, uh, it doesn't have to be in bondage. And I said, great, I'll just draw you whatever superhero you want. And he's, and he said, okay. And uh, I said, what do you want? And he said, uh, I want the escapist. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I didn't know it. I did, it didn't catch me, you know. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll draw the escapist. He's gone, and I started drawing. And I was like, "Oh, you son of a bitch! You got me. He got you. Yeah, you got me." And I was like, "Oh, right, you know." So I was oh, like, "That's oh, so that's funny. That's a good one, you know." So, but I've heard from other friends in various other parts of the country and uh, the continent about the the predilections of uh, of certain types of art collectors in you know different areas of, of the continent and it, it's funny to compare the stories yeah yeah it was it was it's a it was always a straight up no because my my attitude was like i don't want my, i don't want to picture myself taken of me with a drink like a like, with like a drink in my hand because that's not the picture that's not what right. i want to be remembered exactly. in that respect and i certainly don't want a sketchbook full of whatever this, this you know, specificity floating yeah. out there and it just wasn't really my jam so and if it's someone else's jam that's cool have fun carry on oh yeah i have friends who were more than happy to draw batman tied to a bed you know yeah butt naked. and i was like that's not for me you know yeah. and that's fine. more power to you you know but uh i i i don't um like being treated like an art monkey and i definitely yeah. reserve the right to serve you know, not to serve anybody i don't want to right so you said that you went into illustration. So when you went to art college, you were you you primarily focused on on that path. No, not at all, not at all. Um, illustration is something I fell into. Um, when I went to art college, I studied uh, contemporary art uh, okay. and painting. So I, I uh, uh, you got to remember, I was a uh, a really snot nosed, pretentious teenager. You know, dressed all in black. Um, uh, read like uh, Albert Camus and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and when I was a kid, you know, that kind of kid, right? So I go to art college and um, I, I, get, I go to my entrance portfolio and I've got like bad Cubist paintings, you know what nice. I mean? Like, and they're not yeah. like, they're not like Picasso Cubist, they're like Juan Gris Cubist, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Bernard Leger type of... Uh, cubist and then so i go but i have a few other paintings there like that show some ability to draw you know paint realism i was a, i primarily painted in oils from when i was like 14 up okay. and uh, so i go to art college and then uh, after foundation year they ask us to pick our major and at the time uh, the art college i went to the ontario college of art and design had a program called experimental arts which was their contemporary arts program and uh, 
part of it's devoted to making installation artwork and part of it's devoted to painting. Um, and uh, I went through, um, essentially in my teenage to um, art school years, I went through the history of painting in, in a studio format. Like when I was a, when I was a teenager, I started um, learning about the Impressionists, and the, the study of modernism, and then then moved to the post uh, post impressionists, and then I, when I went to art college, I was into the Fauves and the, the Cubists, and then uh, in art college, I realized quickly that the, what we consider uh, what considered modern art is not uh, Cubism from a hundred years ago, you know, <laughs> and right. uh, and, uh, and so I went through the history of modern art, where I I learned sort of I. Uh, studied and appreciated the abstract expressionists and and uh, de Kooning and things like that and then I moved toward um, the pop artists of the 60s who I still love I, I love James Rosenquist and um, and then and then by the time I was in third year art college I was really into the postmodernists I had a really big love for uh, David Sally's paintings and um, and Gerhard Richter and um, and a bunch of others Eric Fischel you know uh, and mm-hmm. I came out wanting to be a painter um, to be a contemporary art painter, but of course that meant that was broke. Right. Yeah. So I, got into, I fell into illustration as a way to make money. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it, I mean, I remember in art college, I mean, there was a definitive, you just, you could just pick all the fine arts students right out versus the illustrators or designers or, and, and oh, you yeah. could pick the, and you could pick the cartoonists out. Believe me, they, they stuck, we stuck out like sore thumbs. Where did you um, go to school? I went to SVA. Ah. Yeah. So um, the tail end of the old guard of teachers there. So I had a Will Eisner is my te- is my, you know, portfolio teacher. Yeah, that school is really highly regarded. And I've seen a yeah. lot of graduates come out of it. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting to see that, like, they had such a from an early point, they had like a comics program, because when I went to art college, we had none of that. There was well, like. It started out as a cartoonist school. That's the thing. It was it was post it was post World War II, uh, GI Bill thing started up to teach vets and other people how to become cartoonists and illustrators, and then so it went from cartooning to illustration and out, and you know eventually you know film and everything else that it took up. Yeah. Well, I went to a more poncy art school where the <laughs> cartooning wasn't even mentioned. You know, comics. No. And, and illustration was even considered um we were like we in the painting program we used to make fun of the illustrators because the sure. illustration department actually had all the money like they could afford color photocopiers and stuff because that brought in the money to the to the school but uh, but meanwhile we were in the painting program barely had sinks that worked you know because mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you're clogging them up with oil paint totally totally and it was disgusting and you know <laughs> it was a studio program and and when i came out of it like i have no training I have no formal training as an illustrator. It's all self-taught. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. But I mean, it's interesting. So I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine and how like the whatever one or two years of art history classes, you know, the painting classes, the sculpture classes, all the foundational elements that they, they you, know, you know, hammer into you, you know, photography classic, all that stuff has been so much more beneficial for me in the long run as far as my 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 career as a creative versus the cartooning classes I took with you know these great cartoonists but you know it's a very narrow focus about like we, you can apply things it was great for sketching like if you're a designer and you're trying to sketch something out well you can draw anything 
and you can draw it quickly and go, hey, this is what we need done. They go, okay, great. But to be able to have a conversation between the difference between the phobists and our deco to people who don't know the difference, you know, you can kind of clarify that to a client and they go, oh, okay. And then you can move on and cash hmm. check. So I found, I found a, a similar type of thing um, in that uh, people ask me, like um, there was an, there was a, there's another art college in my area, Sheridan, um, which had a more animation and, and, uh, and illustration focus. So they're more practical commercial arts school. That's mm -hmm. a stronger focus for them as opposed to the, the ivory tower of fine arts that was the Ontario College of Art and Design at the time. And I still, and people ask like, you know, if you're, if you're not trained as an illustrator and so forth, you know, like what does your OCAD, uh, you know, education do for you? And I was like, to be honest with you, uh, I still use the principles I learned in foundation because mm -hmm. uh, 2D design, um, um, uh, art theory, that kind of thing, um, it's still something that I use daily. Like I, I still um, rely on like questioning first principles of things. Mm -hmm. You know, why do I do this? What's the point of this? What is the focus of this as opposed to, you know, how do I cut ruby lith or, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, or, you know, how do I use Photoshop or something like that? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I whenever i'm stuck i still go back to my initial um impulses and, and training as an as a painter and i go you know what's what how can i strip this out what yeah. what's the essential point of this critique like critique is so powerful like understanding creative you know creative critique and being able to offer that especially when you have to self-diagnose like mm -hmm. if you're looking at something and you just kind of go okay what's going on here what is necessary what is needed what's not needed why yeah. And then, then if you're having client conversations and they, you know, they're like, I don't like it. Well, okay. That's not like, we need, <laughs> we need to come into a little more clarity here than I don't like it, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. like, and so it offered a lot, it offers so much more than just this sort of like, you know, how to paint something or draw yeah, something or yeah. whatever the thing is. I don't need to know how to, uh, I didn't need to go to school to learn how to render, I don't know, snow, uh, coming off of a skiers, you know, ski or something like that. I went to school. I wanted to learn what the point of art was, you know, mm. uh, you know, what is art? Well, how, what's a great way to, what's a good way to think about art? What are different ways to think about art that aren't the way that you normally think about art, you know? And, and those are the things that I learned in art college that still benefit me. Like when I'm stuck and I approach something, I go like, how can I approach this from a completely different angle? Not, you know, how do I render iron fist fist better? <laughs> it, it is a pretty cool fist. Um, <laughs> I mean, what was it? I mean, so like, I mean, going back to your Joy Division t-shirt wearing age of, you know, 17. I did have a Joy Division t-shirt. Okay. you did. You read, you read Camus. You had to have one. Yeah, yeah okay, okay. Um, but like, if you, like, if you're going back to that, like, what was, like, what was the thing that made you like, vector into that that arena of question like why were you why do you feel you were questioning everything like what was it for you um it's it's when you're a teenager you know like um um i was always inquisitive i was um i'm an immigrant to canada so i always have an outsider's perspective mm -hmm. you know um i've had that all my life so because i came here when i was six uh to canada to and experience north american culture that way um, I grew up in North American culture, but being an immigrant and being Korean, I wasn't a part of 
North American culture, I was keenly aware of, say, racism or the fact that I didn't fit in into a predominantly all-white neighborhood or something. So I had that outsider's perspective there. And then I also had, um, among other Koreans, I didn't fit in with other Koreans. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I one time I remember finding myself at a, a bus stop with a bunch of other Koreans and they were all like, uh, and I was like, they're all wearing um, polo shirts with uh, with khakis and uh, and 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 they're all going to church and I'm sitting here, you know, my stupid emo self and I don't fit in here either. <laughs> so um, I was always aware that I was an outsider in all things. So therefore, that you know, that stuck with through your teenage years and and I'm and I'm sitting there uh, working my way through books and uh, you know I I remember reading. Um, on the road by Kerouac when I was like 14 thinking this was the greatest book ever written you know mm-hmm. and two years re- later reading Hemingway and uh, I read um, A Farewell to Arms and thought that was the greatest book ever yeah. written you yeah. know and you're just sort of moving your way through um, literature and arts because I'm I'm that kind of a kid I'm a, I'm a, I'm a creative artistic kid so um, I'm I'm moved and inspired by you know art and literature and music so um, mm-hmm. you know it's like exploring literature. I'm exploring um, as a teenager. I'm exploring painting and and you know figuring out why this particular piece of artwork just can completely generates emotions in me that I, you know, that regular life doesn't. You know, so I remember um, uh, when I was like 14 or 15. I remember going to the school library and taking out this book. Uh, like this is our high school library, you know, and nobody takes out books from the art section. You know, <laughs> it's like you know, and they had this one. Um, they had this one little book of Van Gogh paintings, and uh, there was there was a Van Gogh painting in there. Um, uh, it's it's the one that's in the Russian gallery. Uh, it's of the vineyards, and it's uh, these uh, these women uh, in a red vineyard, and it's just the colors just were spectacular. And I just it turned it started setting off fireworks in a part of my brain that I didn't know existed. I was like, why does this painting move me so much, you know? And and from there, try to discover similar things like that, and then evolving your tastes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, you know, that's what leads to me being the kind of person that I was as a teenager. I'm creative. I'm, I'm, I get a high off of visual stuff. You know, it's the mm-hmm. same impulse that when you're six years old, you're going, why does Captain Marvel appeal to me so much because of that big, you know, yellow lightning bolt with a big yeah. fat black outline that just appeals to you as a kid. And if you're a visual kid, it appeals to you in a slightly different way you know mm-hmm. uh, and that same impulse translates into my teenage years as as i you know try to figure out why does this particular painting why does this particular book you know make me feel a certain way you're chasing more of that yeah yeah do because i mean i mean did you feel the same pressures I, I say i would say maybe like the typical immigrant pressures like on your from like your family or your you know fellow you know korean families that you were you know family friends with like like to you know hey you're here now it's time to do the thing or like this because this artistic expression is not what i would say is the natural you know saying woohoo glad we made it here so our kid can hang out and paint yeah i i 100 percent felt that and it's something that i talk with um uh with other korean um artists uh of my generation about mm-hmm. how uh Every uh, every one of us of a certain generation uh, were discouraged massively from going into art. 
you know, and I, and when I was, a, when I was a kid, I was resentful of that. You know, I, I, I was, um, I, I, my father never wanted me to go into art. He actively discouraged that. You know, my mother was a little more supportive. My mother had a, a um, understanding of art. Like she appreciated painting. She appreciated literature, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but she didn't want me to practically to go into that because from their experience, everybody, their favorite saying was artists starve you know and sure. uh, so it would it would be much better for me to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that and uh, you know and then uh, they consider it their duty to discourage me but um you know uh, as a as a kid i resented that and then as i got older i, I understood it you yeah. know i mean they, sure. they had come here they had suffered a lot to come here and they did not want their son to be a failure and be broke you know mm-hmm. and uh, and and luckily, I disregarded all of that crap and just went at it on my own anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I lied to my parents when needed to. I told them I was taking courses and things that I wasn't taking courses in, you know. And uh, even though, uh, uh, you know, I put all my be- uh, eggs in one basket, which was art, you know, yeah. and uh, I was determined to see it through. Uh, I had a, I had a, an art teacher in, in high school who was a, a failed illustrator, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, he was he tried to discourage me as well from going into art and luckily I was a little snot-nosed punk and I was like all I could think was like well you're a failure it doesn't mean that I'm a failure you know right. <laughs> you know and it's like right. I think I can take a shot at this and I'm gonna see what happens and uh and luckily uh when I came out of school I was broke for a while but um by the time I was in my 30s you know I'd, I'd never taken money from my parents I'd never moved back home mm-hmm. I'd never with them again I and I had uh I had always been self-sufficient enough that uh, my parents eventually accepted what I was doing, and they, eventually they were pleased. You know, yeah. when, when you know what it takes is a, it takes a write-up in the paper. It takes a really? write-up. Okay. All Korean parents are like this, you know. Like okay. all you, have, all you have to do, like when I was ten years old, I had a, a write-up in the local paper and uh, for an art show that I was in for uh, like I, I was in grade five i think that would make me 12 maybe or something and uh and i was in a saturday afternoon art class and uh, and they used me as the poster boy for this exhibition and my parents i didn't think anything of this but my parents went and got like 10 copies of that paper and then years later um you know uh when when my parents were golfing one time with uh, with some family friends and their family friends uh, knew who I was because their son was an artist and I had helped him get a job hmm. right? because I had recommended him to a client because I couldn't do the job. I was too busy. Uh, my parents told me that story and they, and it was a big thing for them. That's some golfing friend who was, Oh, you're Michael Cho's mother. Oh, you know, your, you know, your son helped my son, uh, you, you know, recently with, uh, with something because he recommended him for a job or something massive point of pride for them yeah well i mean but for you like i mean i mean you obviously clearly were sensitive to all of like these sort of you know the transgressions you were you were you were doing like i mean but to hear that like when you were you know a bit older like how did that make you feel like was that like you're like like was it a c c or was it a you know no nothing like that at all actually like for example um my father always actively discouraged um, me being involved in art. I resented him when I was younger, when I was mm-hmm. like a teenager for that. You know, I was wished that I had more supportive parents. As I hit my 30s, I totally understood why. Yeah. You know, definitely as a parent today, I understand why. 
you know but uh i did but the thing is is that like for example um by the when i was um when i was engaged in my uh early 30s i was like 30 29 30 or something like that and uh i went and saw my parents and uh you know with my fiance who's now my wife we've, we've been married for like 20 years and um and my my father and I had a little chat afterwards in the evening, and he said, uh, "You know, son, you know, uh, I didn't understand when you said you wanted to go into art. I th I didn't know what that was. I thought that you know those shops at the mall where they have those pictures of horses. I thought that's where you wanted to work. And I was like, the framing gallery, you know. <laughs> and that was his reference point for art, you know. Yeah. And but I, he said, you know, I thought that's what you wanted to do, and I didn't think that was a good." career path for you but um you know you've never uh you've never moved back home you've never asked me for money and mm -hmm. you seem to be doing well for yourself you know so you know i'm happy that you're doing what you're doing and when i tell that to some other korean friends that story uh, they go like oh my god did you cry then and did you say see see and i was like no actually i had from when i was like 21 or 22 i had given up or uh thought of any need for parental validation okay you know, i didn't need it anymore so it wasn't a, a moment where i was like i felt triumph or like ha got you old man or something like that <laughs> you know i just was like thanks dad you know yeah. you know you know i'll buy you lunch next week you know that kind of well thing. that's genuine you know your response that that like that's a that's a genuine response of thanks dad like it's not a matter like because like there's a real good chance like what they the, the front that they put up set you on the course in so probably, many ways probably. you know I, Be one of the things i do have like um um my dad was a, a very stubborn person you know he was in the army he was an entrepreneur he moved his family you know without knowing the language from one country to another and made a success of himself you know right. in, in his field uh and one of the traits that i do have with in common with him is uh incredible pig-headed stubbornness you know <laughs> i'm gonna do it and nobody can tell me no you know my one of the stories that my grandmother told me years ago was a was one that i always think about where my dad after um, being in the army uh, it was like he was in korea and he came home and he was in his uniform and my grandma came out and found him in the, the front yard and he was uh, telling her this is like late 60s and he's saying and, and she said you know come back inside and he said you know I'm going to move to the USA. And she said, that's crazy. <laughs> Come back inside. It's nighttime. You should go to sleep. And I always think about that because that's my dad. You know, mm -hmm. he was, he's driven. He's going to do it, you know, and uh, whether he knows how or not, he's going to find a way and he's going to, and he's going to trust and have confidence in his ability to do it. And that is a trait I have in common with my dad. You know, I'm pigheaded and uh, you can't, if I have an idea, I'm going to do it, you know, yeah. and you can't stop me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I get that. Like I can, I can see that in, in many aspects of my own life, you know, not being a Korean American and all, but um, like, I definitely have that stubborn gene, which means like, I'm going to, I'm going to see this through. And it, it, it's what it, for whatever it was. And I think that's like, it's part of the makeup for people who sort of, I guess, survive in the arts, you know, if you, you know, because yeah, I mean, we know the, we know the lucky stories. We all know the lucky stories. We've, we've seen them. We're, you know, and listen, we're there because of them in so many ways, but 
you know, the luck doesn't stay. You have to keep, you have to earn the, earn the space oh, at the totally. table. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, like there's always that saying, like for every successful artist, you know, that successful artist had a friend who was way better, but just couldn't get their shit together. Totally. You know? And I, I see that in my life. I've seen that in daily practice and with other artists where I'm, sometimes I'll meet somebody and I'll, uh, somebody will introduce themselves or a friend will introduce me to another friend and I'll go, man, that guy's work is amazing. You know, how come he's not well, more well-known? Well, you know, so-and-so, he can't get his act together. You know, he's sort of like, he lives at home with his mom and he draws on sometimes, but he, he just doesn't, you know, like I, 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 I have that um, immigrant desire to, mm -hmm. you know, to um, succeed and to um, and to go across the street and knock on the door and and get that job, whereas some people, you know, would rather wait at home and wait for someone to knock on their door and offer mm -hmm. them a lesser job. Yeah, no, and the thing is, people aren't going to knock on the door. Like you really do have you have to be the one knocking. That's just how that's how that's how the game works. Um, so hopping back to comic books, I'm trying to like I'm thinking about your fine art like interest. And looking at your work, like, you know, we were talking about Kirby earlier, but like, it's interesting how like your interest in, in art, in thinking of modern art in the terms of what was happening in the late 1800s, early, you know, 1900s, and your interest in like stylistically so many sort of classic aspects of comic book artwork from the, you know, the 60s. It's an interesting thing how you have a very sort of strong eye for the past. And yeah, how you, yeah, yeah, and and how you bring it forward because I mean, like you're citing Kurt, I mean, sorry, you're citing Byrne, which I would not call. I mean, I guess now you can call him a classic artist, but like when we're growing up, he certainly wasn't. Um, and I think that's I think that's really cool. So, like, how do you like? Can you parse that like in your mind, like saying how like do you have any idea why, or is you just like this is truer, purer? Like, what do you think it is for you that draws you to like how you've amalgamated your style? Um, well, first I don't have a style, right? I, I try not to have a style. I know, but like whatever you know, it is, it's you in the end, right? But, um, yeah. I, when I think about this, this is, this is one of the weird, like I, I think about this and I go like, okay, I like innovation and I like raw new ideas, but I also like, um, things from the past and classical ideas, mm -hmm. you know, things. And, um, I like the friction of those two things. So I've always had that weird dichotomy. Um, I, as much as I liked um, um, uh, when I was a kid, as much as I liked innovative new styles of music, for example, I also had a, a real love for classic um, old like music from the '60s that was 20 years out, you know, before mm -hmm. I was born, and so forth. Right. So uh, and I and what I tend to view it as is uh, the thing that I tend to gravitate is the thing that's real you know mm. and my definition of real is different from other people but it's generally um stuff that's raw and that has the hand of the creator visible you know the the primal urge of the creator visible that's the one through line that i see in my work but i also uh, appreciate um things that are um that are sort of um they're evergreen and they're they um and they um evoke something in me that doesn't require context. Like, for example, um, if you look at Art Deco illustrations of the 30s, for example, mm -hmm. some of them, they, they use a distortion and um, um, a, a different way of drawing figures. There's a stylization of the figure that yeah. unless you understand the context of that time, that figure doesn't apply today. 
you know, like that style of work doesn't evoke the same uh, emotions as today. Whereas yeah. there's other illustrators from the thirties that are working from a reference point that is kind of evergreen. And, and that still holds up today because the, you, the, you don't need the context of, of art deco design and stylization and the rhythms that they used in their design in order to understand this drawing and to appreciate this drawing, you know? I totally that, get that. Yeah. And that, that's the stuff that I, uh, I, from the past that I gravitate toward because it's, it's, you know, it still holds up and, uh, and for whatever reason, it doesn't require context to understand it. You know, hmm. so that's the stuff for that's retro that I really gravitate to. But I also have an impulse to, to chase after um, and appreciate like more modern and contemporary work. And uh, I love a lot of contemporary artists that are working in a completely fresh way. You know, and um, the thing that's the uh, if I analyze it, the thing that's the um, the unifier the between all those between all these contemporary artists is the is a search for something that's raw and authentic. Yeah. as opposed to slick you know my sure. the enemy of what i what i do and the thing that i fight against sometimes i sometimes i embrace this in a weird way but um but the thing that i fight against is slick mm. right? like um when i was working more in illustration the, the one thing that you could always rely on when everything else went wrong right in a drawing or an assignment was that you could always make it slicker sure you could always make it by adding make it slick and polished and that'll be good enough to get out the door and that's the enemy right yeah. you want raw better idea right yeah now sometimes i and if i make this into a music analogy for example um i like uh the raw four track demo right with no production on top i like mm -hmm. the song that's recorded on the um i like the the version of the song when you just came up with it and you're recording it in your kitchen table and you've got your four track demo and you could hear the cars going by outside but the raw energy of you just having written the song 30 minutes ago is there and then the studio recording you know six months later with 50 different takes on the the cowbell you know kills all the energy right sure. but occasionally if I can get even more into the weeds here, um, I like the thing that is pure production. If the production and the studio effects are, are it, there isn't mm -hmm. anything else about that. It's kept raw. You know, the, the whole point of the thing is the studio production and not the, um, the, 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 the rest of the song itself. I just like things to be, if there's, if, uh, if something is, you know, got eight elements in usually I like to only have four and balance those four perfectly and if it's just production i want the songwriting gone you know you know what i mean if, <laughs> you know what i mean i want it to be raw that's right. what i'm after you know and uh, and that's the through line so when i see artists that i that i gravitate to that are new i'm like that's what i see in them sometimes they're like oh that's fresh you know yeah, that's yeah. that person's like just ignored this whole other part of art and just focused on this and and made that part sing you know mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. You know, and it's what you're describing is the, and you're going to, I'm sure you're just going to flock to this, is that feeling. So you sit down, got your pencil, got a piece of paper, and you thumbnail out and you come up with these ideas and you go, okay, here, oh, oh, this sketch, I like this thing. And you get the sketch. And the whole process from that point forward is how do I maintain the energy of this two inch sketch? Yeah. It, it's that's that is the ultimate battle of yeah. the visual artist. Yeah, yeah. No, to keep that energy that's in that sketch. And by the way, you can't. 
No. It'll, it'll never happen. So yeah. But like um, when I draw, uh, uh, these days I draw a lot digitally because I like to thumbnail digitally because I get to play with scale that right up. And I'll do the final on paper or whatever. But things, I I budget time uh, to the, I call it post processing time to fuck with things. Right? Oh, cool. Like stuff out. So uh, whatever idea I came up with. If it's even if it's good, and I think this is the this is the this is the perfect idea and everything, I still budget time. Let's see what I can take out. Let's mm -hmm. see how much I can distort this and change this and remove stuff and and see if it if I can have uh, that aha moment again. Because yeah. that's what I'm chasing. That's what I know. It's when it's when it's when I've got something. Is when I get that moment. Like oh, there it is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and uh, and I'll budget time. The, to fuck with things, uh, an image, and just keep stripping stuff out or uh, radically changing the colors. And um, my my work process is kind of designed to maximize that. Like um, even when I'm painting a final, let's say I'm I've drawn something um, in line art and then I'm coloring it digitally, mm -hmm. right? I I put every color on a separate layer, right? Ah, okay. Just so yeah. that I can strip sure. it out or change it to a, a red to a black or to uh -huh. a, or and see what happens right and not so to have that weird overlap yeah 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 i get it yeah and so that i didn't like put all let's say i'm rendering a face i didn't put the face on one layer including all the shadows and such so i can mm -hmm. just sit there and go like now i'm going to see what happens when i take the shadow out of the face now yeah. i'm going to see what happens when i take the color out of that face you know now i'm going to see what happens when you know i change the red into let's say make it black and now it's it, the red doesn't exist anymore on this picture so my process is kind of built to mess with things and to um, not accept um, the initial idea as the as the as the final thing uh-huh it's it's so interesting because like i'm thinking like it's like sort of a combination of like a alex toth ethic of reduction like how do you how do you simplify the message as much as possible, but it still retain, retains all of all of the communication, but infusing your desire for innovation. So like you take this reductionist kind of approach, like okay, well let's let's take out a couple of guitar tracks, you know, like let's keep this clean. Yeah. But then it's like, but how do we how do we play with the uh, you know the production aspect and how do we make what we have here kind of Fresh. really yes yeah 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 uh you know when i i used to work in this um and i still do sometimes i i, I used to work in this style where um i didn't uh have any lines it was all based on light right mm -hmm. it was like a couple colors and then light so it was shadows and and it, the whole point was to eliminate as many lines as possible and just make the work work on color and 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 shape and uh i still do this occasionally but when i was when i was working that way in particular i used to think about that toth code you know eliminate the redundant line uh -huh. you know and uh, that made a huge difference for me because i realized that um uh back then it was like why does when somebody paints Times Square, when they draw all the details and they draw all the damn signs and they draw the license plates and the numbers on the license plate, why does that never look real compared to when someone just um, draws a few flecks and some colors and some mm -hmm. shapes? And that that impression of Times Square gives me the feeling of Times Square yeah. far more than that that super detailed, you know, photo traced basically uh, mm -hmm. line drawing, right? And it's because there's room in the drawing for you. There's room mm -hmm. in the drawing 
your head to fill in the rest of the details. Yep. You know, the work breathes and requires participation from the viewer in order to complete it. So therefore the artist see the viewer sees far more in the drawing than is actually there on the surface, you know? And, and that uh, was like, you know, a, a guiding principle in my work for a long while, you know, I've, in as I've gotten older, I've gotten bored because one of my other things that I always say to myself is I don't want to bore myself. So I, I'm always switching things up and trying different things and um, anything that I um, accepted as uh, as a as a principle of art, I'm I'm open to questioning again. So mm-hmm. uh, years later, I went and and I decided, you know, well, I've ignored line for a, like a decade. You know, I'm going to go and see what happens when you add lines and just build right. drawings lines you know or um, you know or, or slicker digital color and see if there's something there for me that i can that i can work in you know so i i, I but i still have that reductivist tendency that that toth had you know yeah. um, i remember uh, reading a quote uh, where it was something somebody said uh, a drawing isn't perfect when there isn't more to add a drawing is perfect when there's nothing more you can take out yeah you know totally. and i remember that it was like that makes perfect sense to my head yeah. 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 No, I, I, that was always a very strong design principle for me. You know, it was always just like, take everything you can possibly take out, you and know, to keep, to keep the message. Right. Yeah. Because everything else is a distraction. Just keep it just down to this, the, the bare, bare essentials. And, you know, you were saying about the, the, you know, the, the shadow, no line, like that was a very much what I got out of like Mark Chiarello. Like you look at Chiarello's work and you're like, that guy is just pushing color, shape, and shadow on us. Yeah. Chirillo's great. I mean, like, geez, what a loss for the comic industry not to have him as art director at DC. I know. Jesus, I know. like, you know, I used to, like, I've worked in illustration uh, for, what, uh, 20 years? And I've worked in comics for, what, 10 years as an overlap on that? Okay. Mm-hmm. And I can count on the fingers of one hand the art directors that can draw. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I can count on one finger the art director who could draw as good as or as better than me. Yeah. And that was Chiarello. Yeah. You know, it's a unicorn of unicorns. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I know. To, to, to have that vision and, uh, and then to find that, you know, years like what was it like three years ago that DC cut him? And I was just like, yeah. this is a bean counter mentality, man. Like you do not know what you are losing when you lose a guy with this eye. It, the know? the eye, the experience, and the ability to inspire the people mm-hmm. who work with him to totally, be better. Totally, you I mean, know. That, that was oh, how many dude. good artists? How many great artists? Like, have I talked to over the years? Who, uh, when I asked them, like, so how did you get your first gig? It's like, oh, it was Chirello. Right. Oh, for you sure. Know? For sure. Like it was. It, you know, I mean, I didn't get to work with him directly but like i mean you know john ramirez senior like i mean like like you knew he was there you knew oh, yeah. like you yeah. know you're like okay like like there's a chance that he's going to keep like if he did something with spider-man he may see it you know and you like it damn well better be spider-man this for him critique that um art adams of all people you know posted uh, about john ramirez senior uh, redrawing something of his and showing him right mm-hmm. and i was like yeah that's an art director yeah you know and uh like when i talk to friends with about chiarello i'm just like yeah like i came in because of chiarello like at dc he gave me my first dc assignment you know and how many other people that he who are radically different from the accepted norms in comics mm-hmm. did he bring in and see something in them that would that that's would, the job of an art director exactly, you know? exactly. yeah 
No, no, I, I, I firmly agree. And, you know, it's a, it's, you know, that, that kind of stuff is a loss. And I wish, I do wish both companies, and I only speak about them because they're larger entities and it can afford to have positions like that. But like that, that they, that, that would be a great thing. Like take a look at any great artist over the age of 50 and really consider them, you know, for that position, because to be able to build, to be able to build and foster a future for the company on a visual level and an artistic level, it would be, it would be invaluable as, as an investment. But it doesn't have, I mean, like Chirello was 50 when he took that position. No, no, no. I'm saying, but like, but like what I'm saying, but like that way, at least you're going to front load a lot of experience in there, you know? Right. Like, you know? And, and to be fair, like um, Marvel has an excellent um, eye in uh, Tom Brevoort. Yeah. Uh, he's fantastic. Like yeah. uh, when, when I would do panels, I would talk about um, uh, like uh, editors who had a, who had a really great impact. And I always always point out Chirello was great and Tom Brevoort is great. Yeah. Because uh, he'll give me ideas uh, when I was starting out at Marvel uh, and in an email, and it'll just be like two sentences, and it'll open up a whole world of thinking. He, you know, and, and he's I, I can come up with seven covers based on this idea. He's invaluable for them in that in that same respect. I mean, because he has all this sort of like knowledge of mm-hmm. you know of an experience of being there for so. I mean, look, Tom, Jesus, Tom, I wrote like one of the earliest book books stories I ever did. Like, I mean, like. You know, we were both young dudes back then. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's, he's great. And, and nobody, and nobody loves Marvel comics as much as he does. Like he just <laughs> loves Marvel comics. So yeah. he's, he's and great. He's got, he's got outside the box ideas. Like, you know, yeah. as in his position, like he sees the over, he sees the whole as opposed uh-huh. to just, you know, the little pieces. So therefore he can come up with something that um, like ideas that are, um, uh, outside of you know the mainstream yeah totally yeah i mean and i i mean i like to i mean you know i like to think of this stuff because i mean i think because i you know comics is my first love um and i just think you know I, you know I, if, to say this stuff puts it out in the universe <laughs> maybe it rattles its way somewhere one day and ends up in somebody's uh you know somebody's action list who knows <laughs> um so what's going on like you're done you're done you're done conning. You're done conning the the North America for the rest of the year. What's go, what, what are, you, are you working on any projects? Uh, do you have anything yeah. coming out that people can take a look at, or what's going on, man? Well, I am. My big project right now is I am. Um, I'm finishing up work on an original graphic novel for um, Abrams Marvel Arts, uh, featuring the uh, Silver Age Avengers. Um, and it's, um, it's part of Abrams initiative, uh, with Marvel to put out, um, uh, hardcover original graphic novels, much like, um, I think the first in the line was the Alex Ross one, mm-hmm. uh, Fantastic Four, Full Circle. And so this one is in the, in the same line, but it's not a continuation of that book. Obviously it's just my, it's a new one and it's written by uh, my buddy Chip Kidd, who, uh, asked me if I wanted to do this. And I said, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, um. And so I'm, I've finished penciling it and I'm about to start inking it. And then uh, other than that, um, I have, uh, I'm working on a bunch of covers for Dark Horse's um, uh, Lucasfilm uh, Star Wars. Uh, oh, graphics. cool. 
So um, I should probably, maybe I shouldn't announce it, but what the hell. Um, but it's it'll be announced in New York Comic Con shortly. So I okay. think, uh, and I'm doing a bunch of covers for their graphic novels there featuring Star Wars characters. And other than that, um, what's on the list right now? I am drawing a cover for Amazing Spider-Man, a variant cover, um, another, some other small ones. And um uh, just catching regular cover, cover assignments and cool. uh, the occasional illustration assignment. But the, the graphic novel is the biggie. That's the that's one that's amazing. Chip's great. I, I, I got a, I got an advanced reader copy of his first novel years ago. Chip Kids. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it, you know, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's, it, it was basically, it's kind of like a autobiographical kind of yeah. you know, novelization of his experience oh, in, in design school. Yeah. And it was great. It was fantastic. So, but my big question to you in that one, hearing that, who's doing the cover? I am. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, but he's also like the pre preeminent, you know, cover designer for the last 30 years. Well, so, I'm just a friend of mine. Um, I think uh, what'll happen is I'll do the artwork, he'll do the design, right? I think that's, that's a great that's been the way that we've been working on the mock ups for this cover. Um, yeah. But um, it's great collaborating because he's a friend, right? He was my editor at. Um, uh, at Pantheon when I put out my uh, last graphic novel. And also um, we worked together on a Batman story for uh, Batman Black and White years ago, brought in by Chiarello, right? And um, and uh, and he's, he's um, incredibly enthusiastic and he loves comics, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and he has an impeccable design sense as you know which can't be questioned and uh and he's also incredibly generous enough that when he gives me a script he goes feel free to edit and change what's needed and do it your way you know so mm -hmm. there's a level of trust in that i trust his his abilities and he trusts my abilities and we try to bring our best qualities to the project yeah that's amazing i mean as a, de a designer for over 20 years, man, like Chip is one of the people I've always just kept a close eye on because I just think his his sensibility is just really unmatched. And he has a world-class Batman collection. Oh, world. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is. A, yeah. yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. He, is, he is, it stands in a in a class of his own in that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I saw the, the, um, the Batman... Um, memorabilia book that he, he has and then i was at his place i didn't realize that oh you actually owe most of this <laughs> right 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 this was just a photo shoot in his own place yeah it felt like it yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy makes me think of the i don't do you know do you know david Irwin from a dc he no was a he was like the special projects guy who handed like a lot of licensing stuff for like films and uh projects there Used to be at uh, at DC, but I think that's a different Irwin. So David Irwin, I do not know. Yeah, and um, I remember walking in his office, and he had the plaster bust of Nicolas Cage in the Superman outfit. I think, <laughs> and it was like because it was before the movie was like you know you know they were working on all the pre production. It was just one of those things. I'm like, and you wonder like where is that thing now? Like where did that go? Yeah. You know. You know the weird thing is I don't have a. a thing for like memorabilia or um, yeah I don't, I don't collect anything yeah same with me like you know like i have friends i remember helping um friend move years ago and he had like tupperware bins full of action figures i don't have a single no. damn action figure. i got one little thing in my studio and it's this uh, that uh, someone gave me and it's a statue of jack kirby 
and that's about as good as it there gets. you go you know? um that's the one thing i got and i you know i still talk to it occasionally but other than that yeah, like, I, you know, I, don't, I don't collect the uh, the items i know? don't have anything i do i there is a box somewhere which has my original micronauts from the 70s like i yes. i have like i have like you know six or seven of those in a box somewhere that's about yeah, it. See, and like i get toys from friends um who um have like a designer toy come out or something like that and they send me a few and i'm like i always tell them i'm going to take them out of the boxes and i'm going to play with them with my kids okay right. so just no and they're like oh yeah go for it and i was like because that's what toys are meant to be done i you know, thoroughly agree i thoroughly agree i'm not a I, I, I'm not a back camp, but that's, but whoever is cool, have fun. Um, cool, man. Well, um, I guess I'll see you maybe next year at Heroes if you come back. Yeah. Looking forward uh, to I, I have to see what my 2024 schedule is, but yeah. like, I mean, it's like October right now. So I know. So Heroes is always a great con. I mean, everybody loves that show. And yeah. it's one of the few that I, the shows that I will do back to back because, um, the, the community is so great and uh, uh, the fans are great. And then the, the fellow artists are great, you know, like the, the list of people there, you're always going to see your friends. So totally. Well, you had, you had your little Canadian chunk right there with. Andy, yeah. Andy. You interviewed, uh, you interviewed uh, Carl yeah. and Andy. As well, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Talk to them both. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're, they're great dudes. So fun to talk with. I actually just talked with a uh, West Craig. It just came out. So another Canadian Montreal, you got the whole yeah. Montreal. Yeah, I've got to, now I'm moving into Toronto. So I'm just actually I already got um, Adam Gorham. He's one of your Toronto's, I think. Oh, no, I don't know. Oh, okay. Nice guy. Yeah. Really nice guy. You yeah. definitely. I'm uh, I like Andy, Carl, and uh, Wes. I know Andy and Carl used to both be in Toronto. Wes is like Montreal through and through, right? Yeah. So, um, but um, Andy and Carl used to be in Toronto. We used to see each other every week for lunch, you know. Oh, nice. They have a studio just a few blocks from my place. So, But Toronto has a large contingent of artists as well. It's a big city. Yeah. yeah. And it's also like... Every create comic creator eventually in Canada moves to Toronto for a little while just to meet up with other people, and then they realize it's too expensive, and they go to Montreal or Nova Scotia. Right, because I mean, you had Becky Cloonan up there for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Becky was in Montreal. I don't think she, she ever. Oh, went to Toronto. oh yeah, no, you're right. She's she's in Montreal. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah, Becky's great too. So yeah, of course, she's almost honorary Canadian. Like you know, <laughs> she'll well listen if it all goes down. In the negative way down here, I'm sure she'd like to hear that officially. So yeah, we get socialized medicine, you know. So healthcare is yeah. great. <laughs> How dare you be so civilized? Um, all right, man. Well, I, listen, it was great talking with you, and um, I'm looking forward to the graphic novel. This is this is pretty exciting. I'm looking forward to finishing it. It's yeah. been uh, right now. Now you just have to do it all. <laughs> it's actually really cool though, because it's been it's filled with like two page spreads and and giant splash pages it's it's my opportunity to go full kirby i've actually had an immensely good time drawing it like and i don't normally say that like it was like every page was a joy and a, a challenge but it was like i was like laughing as i was drawing because i was having so much fun there's to have like i was drawing um um eight page and ten page stories uh and 20 page stories as i was warming up to draw stories again you know from mm -hmm. just doing covers for so long um and uh it was when you're doing a 10-page story it's like what will eisner said you're conducting a symphony in a phone booth you know mm -hmm. every panel is is important and you can't waste a single panel when when you have a a graphic novel you can stretch out and do like you know interesting sequences of storytelling and uh and that was just super fun to do 
Oh, dude, that's great. I can't, I really can't wait. I guess that's going to be a later this next year kind of thing for the rest of yeah, the world. It'll be announced, I think, sometime um, in New York or soon when um, when Abrams uh, announces it. Uh, cool. I think it's already been soft announced, but there'll be a big rollout. Michael, thanks, man. Um, I hope to talk to you soon, all right? Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on your podcast.